This is the Loop Ventures Neurotech Podcast. I'm Doug Clinton. On this episode, I'm joined by AJ Keller, the founder and CEO of Neurosity. On the show, we talk about AJ's experiences in working on OpenBCI, where there's room for innovation on EEG hardware, and the opportunity for EEG-based neural interfaces. And now, here's AJ Keller. AJ, thanks for joining us. No problem, Doug. Thank you for having me. So to start, could you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got interested in neuroscience? Absolutely. I think it really started a long time ago when I was a little kid. And I remember seeing my dad use computers. And I remember him asking this question, you know, why can't computers just save automatically? Why do we have to physically go up there and click the button to hit save? I think some of these things should be automated. And that idea sort of stuck with me for a long, long time this idea of computers sort of having more of a brain and more of a artificial intelligence layer to them. And that sort of runs parallel with neuroscience in my mind and getting the computing world and computers themselves to be more natural and fluent with humans. And then fast forward a couple of years, I was working at Boeing in the robotics division, working on, you know, how do you build planes faster without hiring more people? Use robots. And I remember training robots and was there and I thought, you know, if we could just have one tap with our brain, you know, one input where we could have that extra arm, we could radically change the way people interact with robots, whether it's an emergency stop or it's having to train them, getting rid of the touchpad controller that people use to program robots and sort of interfacing that with your brain could allow a much more natural and ergonomic way to interact with robots on the factory floor. And if you look at collaborative robots and how much people are using those nowadays and the increase of collaborative robots, this sort of was an obvious potential market here for this brain tap. And that really got me started in neuroscience. Traditionally, I'm a computer engineer. I don't have a neuroscience degree, but I left Boeing. And for about two, three months, I just read every book I could find on it and gave myself a run up, asked questions, found online groups, talked to PhDs, talked to people, and just started learning neuroscience the hard way. That's great. Sometimes self-taught's the best. And that sort of led you to work on a project called OpenBCI, correct? Yeah, that's exactly correct. I thought, you know, well, let me look at all the technology that's out there for getting data out of the brain and EEG, electroencephalogram, seemed like the most readily available consumer product. And OpenBCI is a small but large footprint company located up in Brooklyn. And I was in South Carolina at the time and just shot a message over to the CEO, Connor Rusumano, and said, hey, just left my job as an engineer. If you want me to pack boxes or do anything, I just want to hang out with you guys and maybe hack on some of your hardware. That's awesome. For the audience, how would you describe what OpenBCI is? For the large 20 years or so leading up to 2013, EEG devices were pretty much restricted only to labs. They were complex. There were these black box systems. You don't know what's inside them. And they were expensive, you know, 10 grand minimum just for a couple channel system. 
And OpenBCI leveraged a DARPA grant originally to create a low-cost portable EEG device, and they used this chip from Texas Instruments that was essentially an EEG on an integrated circuit. And they incorporated this EEG on an integrated circuit with an Arduino-compatible microcontroller. And now, all of a sudden, you have the Arduino of EEG devices that costs a couple hundred dollars is fully open source, the schematics, the drivers, the graphical user interface. I mean, every part of it is refreshingly open source. And people just from all around the world just flock to this device because it was just so refreshing to have this opportunity. Whether you're a lab in Brazil and you want to order 10 of them, you're a startup like my company and you want to leverage this into your own commercial product, or you're a makerspace in California Everyone sort of has this use for a high-quality biosensor, something that picks up on physiological changes in your body, converts that to a digital wave, sends that over a Bluetooth connection to your computer, and allows you to analyze it. It's great. It really is cool hardware for anyone that hasn't checked out OpenBCI yet. We'll put a link in the show notes. So AJ, let me hit on a few points. One is you mentioned your company, Neurosity. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But in terms of your timeline, you move from South Carolina up to Brooklyn and you start working on OpenBCI. I hope Connor didn't have you just packing boxes. What was most of your focus while you were working on OpenBCI? He didn't have me pack boxes. Uh, <laughs> what they were really great about is I said, AJ, here's some hardware. You know, if you're going to be developing stuff with us, take some hardware, take it home with you, have some fun. Every Friday, they were inviting makers into their lab. And some of these makers were PhDs from NYU. And they had this vision of creating EEG experiment programs in the web browser. But they had this problem where they couldn't get data from the OpenBCI device. The OpenBCI device was going into a Java-based GUI or a Python code set. And they needed something that allowed it to be easier to interface with the web browser. So I created the first Node.js, which is a JavaScript-based programming language and framework driver for the OpenBCI. And... These PhDs, they were great neuroscientists, but they weren't as adept at handling the ones and zeros that I was trained on during my computer engineering time. So within you know about a week or so, I had them getting this data into their web browser and these experiments. And I would say by like February of 2016, Connor and Joel were like, wait a minute, this is like the best documented, most well-tested driver that we even have this is insane like how are you doing this why are you doing this like can we pay you <laughs> i was like yeah you can pay me i was like That's awesome <laughs> are you sure like yeah and so uh <laughs> yeah they started paying me and this started this great relationship that i still have with them today where i've been working on their software and hardware and firmware and just all different types of their technological stack to make it easier and simpler to use. I think some of their firmware that I rewrote, I took down from like seven or 800 lines of code in this one file to like 20. So, so it's so accessible for people new to the space to get data in it at all different levels of it. You touched on something interesting there, which is there seems to be two 
cohorts of people that work on neuroscience related projects. They either come from a CS background like yourself, or they come from a neuroscience background. And I'm curious in your experience, are the two groups attacking different problems fundamentally, or do you think they're attacking sort of the same problem, but they view it maybe slightly differently because of their background? What's sort of the dynamic there? I think everyone is attacking the same problem right off the cuff. I think everyone's trying to understand the brain. Researchers are trying to do it to write research papers, I feel like, and the hackers and makers are trying to start companies based off these brainwaves. So they may be attacking it in different ways, like you said. I think that's a great way to put it. The researchers who are using this stuff, they want to go into MATLAB and Python and more traditional-based processing systems. Whereas the makers and hackers, they want to use the iPhone to make applications. They want to use the web browser and all these different things. But at the end of the day, they have a lot of overlap in the problems that they have. Working with OpenBCI, what are some of the coolest things you've seen or maybe most unique approaches to solve that fundamental problem? Definitely. I think my favorite is someone flew a plane with it. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah, they've done that. Anytime you go to a hackathon or anything like that, there's people creating crazy flashing light rigs that will let you to like turn on light bulbs or different things like that just by looking at one flashing light versus another. People are writing research papers, you know, and publishing novel research based on these devices, which is cool because, you know, they're cheaper so you can buy more of them. This guy in New York who I met did this amazing art performance that was really euphoric and thought-provoking, but he had two people. It was called like a silent conversation. And he was using EEG and two OpenBCIs and this Wi-Fi Shield product that I created for OpenBCI. And two people were standing on stage and the person on the right was looking at the person on the left's brainwaves and the person on the left was looking at the person on the right's brainwaves. And they were having this silent conversation and it was loud and the lights were bright and the audience was like totally captivated. I brought a couple of friends there from out of town and they were like, what are you doing, AJ? That's pretty cool. <laughs> it was really cool. Yeah. So I've seen all different types of things from art to science to research. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. It's interesting, too, because like the conversation is so reflexive your reaction to the brainwaves of the other person creates a reaction that they see in your, you know what I mean? It goes back and forth. I mean, literally like a conversation. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, essentially, if you look at a flashing light, your brainwave will synchronize to that flashing light. So if you're looking at the other person's brainwaves, you know, your brainwaves will sync to their brainwaves, essentially. And it's just really reflexive, really introspection is really cool. Yeah. Why don't we talk a little bit about Neurosity to the extent you can share? So you've started a company now based on some of your experience with OpenBCI. And what are you trying to do at Neurosity? Sure. So Neurosity builds computers that are controlled by thought. And it's a little bit of a different approach to what we've seen out here. And what we really want to do is take advantage of this exponential increase in network devices whether it's your computer, your phone, all these different things around you in your life, smart light bulbs, TVs, they're all networked, they're all connected to the internet. And we want to have one more computer, and we want that computer to be on you. 
and that computer to be driven by thought, not by touch, not by anything like that, but to actually be driven by your thoughts. And what's the world look like when you have this computer on you that's fully capable and it's able to then control these devices around you and also run background processes that are based on your emotion. You know, are you falling asleep at the wheel? Does your car need to pull over? Are you tired? Should you push back that meeting? And sort of creating this active artificial intelligence that is always decoding your thoughts, feelings, and emotions, deriving your intentions, and automatically controlling the computer devices around you. Got it. And you want to create the software layer that enables developers to leverage that information. Yeah. And, you know, I think we'll focus a lot initially on developing the application that ships with it. Mm -hmm. But my partner and I are developers at heart. We have demystified the process of making drivers for these biosensors. And we want to make it so easy that, you know, anyone with a little bit of coding experience, anyone at a hackathon or anything like that could create the next sort of application. It's an interesting problem for collecting, whether it's EEG data or EMG, which is you need hardware to do it. And I'm curious, especially with your experience through OpenBCI, how you think about the hardware problem and just getting people to adopt, you know, maybe it's not an array of sensors that people wear on their heads. That seems like a big ask because it's tough to go out in public with those. But what does that look like? You know, how do we get consumer adoption of some kind of device that gives us at least some basic signal from the brain that's also something people are willing to wear? Yeah, I think a lot of the effort is getting people to actually adopt this technology. So it's a great question. And that's something that at Neurosity we spend a lot of time thinking about. It's our whole blood and soul of the company is creating products that people will actually want to wear, whether it be in public or at your home, and to not feel that stagnation, that feeling that people got when they were wearing Google Glass or something like that. So whether it's through creating just an application that allows people to do more, will the product be so compelling in its feature set that people will say, you know what, it's okay? Or do we just make a device that is not trying to be hidden? You know, I think a lot of the mistakes that people have made is trying to make discrete cameras and glasses, for example, but it doesn't work. You know, as soon as someone sees that camera, they're like asking you about it, like, why are you recording this? What are you doing with that? But the magic leap approach where, hey, let's just go for it. Let's make the design the best we possibly can. You know, it may look a little bit edgy, but for right now, there are a lot of early adopters that are spending money and are putting effort and trust and buying into the vision of these newer companies. So I think as long as the story of your company and the ethos of it is in check and is consistent, I think there's a large enough early adopter set that will just sort of latch on to what the company's putting out. If the product is compelling enough, if the design has been designed with love and, and care and it looks great, you know, it's comfortable to wear. And by wearing it, you get the conversation going as to, you know, what is that? Does it feel good? Here, try this on. And getting people who are in the mentality of being early adopters to talk about it and wear it and show people and give talks wearing it and different things like that, I think will drive the adoption of these devices, you know, over time. One thing I'm curious about is we've spent a lot of time looking at both invasive 
BCI solutions. So things like paradromics, where it's a, a microwire array that's surgically implanted. And we've looked at non-invasive solutions, like I think what you're looking to build with Neurosity. How do you think about the different opportunities between those two very different applications in BCI? Creating comfortable, non-invasive BCIs is really important. If I can get my best friend to put this on, to give me money for it, and to use it and use it with me, then I think non-invasive has a really big opportunity for something that's comfortable, that isn't scary looking. But then you have this other side of the coin, which is invasives. And my gosh, I think that's so great and has so much potential. I think the research has shown just tremendous things, whether it's one of my most amazing things I've seen is a mouse being able to transmit his memory of a maze to another mouse and the mouse completes it Mm -hmm. much faster than the other mouse did. And so I think non-invasive is an amazing opportunity, whether it's through Neuralink or Kernel or some of the DARPA grants that come out. The invasive field will, I think, predominantly be an option for people who have severed their spine and can't walk anymore. I just saw something where someone did like over 300 steps through electrical stimulation. So I think the opportunity is really great for that, but there's this big medium of people who are totally healthy and just want a device, want to demystify and declutter all the craziness around them, you know, of all these different devices that are around us, being able to just think thoughts and being able to control those. You know, if we can nail that opportunity with a non-invasive, I think there's a lot of potential there. The work at open water with lights and different things like that and LEDs. Will that be the one that solves it? I'm not sure, but you know they're still talking about like wearing a ski mask or a ski hat to cover these sensors up, and that's not even thinking about a consumer product. So you can tell by the way that they present that that they're still not latched onto this. How are we going to pitch this to the consumer? So figuring out what that first killer app is is another opportunity. Does that, that sort of make sense? It does make sense. Actually, I didn't intend this as a pun, but it literally came to mind that you read my mind mentioning the killer app. Mm -hmm. And I was curious, that was going to be my next question is, what do you think that first really killer app is going to be for BCI? Is it control? Is it the emotional understanding you mentioned? Is it conversational? How do you think about it? Well, I guess it's totally dependent on the technology that it's used for. So we certainly at Neurosity think it's control. We believe that giving people the tools they need to automatically map thoughts to different actions is a great application that we would love to use. Whether it's the next step of creating applications for emotion monitoring or different things like that, that's something that we would love to see developers use our device for. Certainly, I think there's been, and my partner and I, Alex, talk about this all the time, but there just hasn't been that great of a device where people can develop applications for and deploy them to the device and have people be able to pick up the device, use this application, similar to how Apple didn't create Spotify. Spotify was created on the iPhone and is you know one of the biggest music app, if not the biggest music app in the world, right? We want developers to be able to be enabled like that when they use our Neurosity devices and giving them the tools and the brain store or the brain marketplace, whatever we want to call it, giving them the opportunity to sell their applications on a centralized store that other people can download them at. I think that's going to show where the killer apps are going to come from. 
rather than a couple guys sitting in a lab in the basement, you know, I highly doubt that the same team that creates the device, it has the potential to come up with the killer application just because they're too close to it. So demystifying how to get thought intentions on a portable device that gets great quality signal, I think is going to lead to people creating the next great application. And, you know, I think we should be able to sell this device with control as the first killer app and see what people are able to come up with on top of that, whether it be something that automatically pushes back your meetings when you're tired or it be something that is not the killer app, but the lifesaver app that pulls your car over just because you're too tired. Giving people the opportunity to create those apps is really what we want to do. You know, if you're a developer for Google or something, or you know, you're able to take your calendar as input and automatically schedule meetings based on your peak performance and adjust your calendar if you're tired, give you a notification that, hey, AJ, go take a 20-minute nap. You're way below your performance. You're not going to do well in this meeting. And that meeting is automatically pushed back, you know, an hour just to give yourself some time to go get a coffee or rest your eyes for a little bit. I think giving people the tools to develop these applications is more important than to finding the killer application than us sitting here spitballing on it, you know, or maybe it is where you and I are talking about amazing things we'd like that we would like to have applications for. And in just a couple of minutes, being able to test that theory and being able to say, oh, wow, you know, that is something that I like. And being able to like rapidly iterate applications like that on a platform is going to lead to the next killer application. It's when all those things meet together that we're going to find the killer apps. I like that approach. I mean, I think you make a really good point, which is there's sort of a first hurdle, which is to get the products out into the hands of, you know, workable product that's out in the hands of developers that can go to consumers and then let developers figure out what people are really interested in. I think that is the most scalable way to figure out the killer app, it seems like. Yeah. And at the very least, give a couple applications that we love to use in-house and deploy those with the device so that they're immediately usable and they're a good demonstration of the internal capabilities of this product. So that by the time developers get them in their hands, say, wow, I can totally make this way cooler just by creating this next application based off of it, giving them the means to distribute that and setting up a system where they're able to actually make a living based off writing these applications. I love that future. And I think even eventually getting FDA clearance and letting people doing neurofeedback and different methodologies for helping people with depression, anxiety, I think that's a totally a future that I would love to see people use our device for. Yeah. Let me ask you a question around privacy, because I think privacy gets brought into the conversation a lot as it relates to neurotech. And maybe from your perspective as a computer scientist, do you feel you have to treat brain data, EEG data, differently than you might treat any other personal information that you would collect from someone in an application? Or is it just a matter of traditional computer security? I think a lot of PhDs are trying to use EEG to identify biomarkers for diseases. So I would say there is some compelling evidence out there that supports the concept of EEG having sensitive data. I just believe that research is showing that whether it's early signs of dementia or Alzheimer's, a health insurance company would love to get their hands on. So yeah, I think there is, you know, with brain data, there is that level. And in neurosity, we have this saying, you know, never send raw data. That's our big saying, you know, don't send raw brainwave data, 
strictly send anonymized metadata. And we really believe that we can mitigate the risk of that sensitive brainwave data from ever being leaked or destroyed or disseminated just by not sending it. And that's really where we're at. We take that super seriously. We don't want to be, you know, the next company that people are regretting in 10 years from now that they used our device just because a health insurance company got a hold of it, ran an algorithm over it, and is now disqualifying people from getting health insurance. We don't want to be that company. So we can mitigate that risk 100% by never sending raw data. Yeah, that's a really great tactical implementation of a policy that can protect your users. And I think that's a selling point, too, for your end users, that you will protect their data. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that as we have this brain store that people are writing applications for, it's something we can check for. You know, is this developer creating an application that's just leaking your brainwave data to a third party server? We can check that because like with our device to get raw EEG is like two lines of code. So it's super easy as a developer to get this brainwave data. So, you know, for us to be able to check and verify that you're not sending that to a third party server is really easy. And we'll prevent that from happening and, you know, sort of block those types of apps from getting into our store and not following the principle of never sending raw data. Okay, cool. So let me jump into the last question. We ask everybody that comes on the show this, and you actually even alluded to it earlier, so I'm excited for this answer. What's your favorite neuroscience-related book? It's got to be Nexus. I'm going to butcher his name, but it's Nexus by Ramiz Nam. Have you read it? I have not read that, no. Oh, it is a fantastic book. I highly recommend anyone who's into this space. It won't take you that long to read. The author is a great guy. It's a really fun book. It's all about this sort of future where you have these people, they'll take a drug. It's called Nexus. And this drug, essentially, it gets to a point where these kids are running operating systems using this drug that has been implanted in your brain. And you're now able to run fully blown like native applications in your head. And that concept as a whole is something I would love to see where you're able to run native applications for reading and writing to your brain. I think that's a really cool future. That's awesome. I'm definitely going to read that book. Yeah, highly recommend it. Well, perfect. AJ, that's everything I have for you today. Thanks again for joining us. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for your time, Doug. I appreciate it. <laughs> 